Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 460 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find awesome writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of many, many books, but her latest is The Wolf's Howl, a Maven and Reeve mystery. How are you, Al? Well, I'm about as well as can be expected for mid-December. Don't you think that's, oh, that's yes. a, yeah, I just feel like there's um, just, just a certain gear that we all get into at this time of the year and that's Absolutely. about where I am at the moment. And I'm not sort of, as far as my writing life goes, there's, there's not much going on, but everything mm. else has just got, you know, hit high gear and you have to buy that crap. I haven't bought the ham. Like, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm in that. <laughs> <laughs> sort of got to buy a ham, got to sort of think about the side dishes. I'm just, yeah, I'm focused on that. I, I've really, Christmas has just kind of crept up on me this year. I know. Yeah, it's not been. Like about two weeks ago, I was actually reveling in the fact that it felt like it wasn't busy this year because of the, you know, slowness of the whole year really mm. and I was actually thinking oh this is great why can't all Christmas lead-ups be like this and then bang as soon as December hit it's like it accelerated till as you say a higher gear and I'm just run off my feet it's crazy. well I feel like it's a little bit in chipmunk mode too I feel like we're on fast forward because <laughs> I think I think people are kind of trying to make up for or I don't know, there's a sense of let's make up for the, the last year and there's also a sense of let's get this in just in case, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like there's that sort of going on. Um, so, yeah, so it's kind of, you know, I, I've, I've had midweek events. I just, I'm not coping. I know. I'm not coping <laughs> at all, like midweek, let alone anything else. But I'm doing my best. I'm soldiering on. All right. Well, I think both of us have very full days today, so we're going to plunge straight into the podcast, this episode, because um, we actually are running out of time in our own diaries. Yes. So let's move straight on to our competition this week. Now, listeners may remember that we have a massive holiday reading pack of 15 books. Your bookshelf will topple over with these great additions to your reading pile. Now, I'm not going to read all 15, but here are some of them. They're across a range of genres and they include Who Fed Zed by Amelia McInerney, which is a fab picture book, Hold Your Fire by Chloe Wilson, a collection of short stories, The 22 Murders of Madison May by Max Barry, um, which is science fiction, and uh, we had a chat to Max in a previous podcast, um, The Countess from Kirribilli by Joyce Morgan, which is a literary biography. We also chatted to Joyce in a previous episode. And Cooking with a Koori by Nathan Lyons, which is a cookbook. And also many more. You can go to writercenter.com.au slash win and entries close on the 27th of December. Just go to writercenter.com.au slash win. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that we've written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. 
We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. So Al, are you ready for the word of the week? Well, yes. I'm ready. Okay. Strigil. S-T-R-I-G-I-L. Strigil. No. (laughs) Okay. So if you need a Christmas present for a very hard to buy person or somebody who likes really smooth skin. (laughs) Right. A strigil originally was an instrument with a curved blade used by the ancient Greeks and Romans for... (laughs) scraping the skin in the bath oh no stop (laughs) but they're available you can buy replica roman strigils in you know and you can get modern ones made of plastic oh can you please can i i no please do not give me one of those or i do not want to receive a strigil in the post at any time just makes my skin crawl the very thought of it (laughs) and that was the word of the week This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our course, Crime and Thriller Writing. In this five-week online course, you'll discover how to write a gripping page-turner, the different types of crime and thriller fiction, the ingredients every good story needs, how to manage characters, pace, suspense and climax, and publishing options and much more. And you'll get feedback on your writing from your tutor. Let's hear from Shankari Chandran. When I first decided to do a course at the AWC, I had been writing for a few years. I had taken time out of my career as a lawyer to have our fourth child, and life was chaotic, but I had always wanted to write, and so I thought I would give it a go in between baby feeds and school runs and so on. I have just published The Barrier with Pan Macmillan Australia, and I'm loving it. For many years, being published felt like an impossible dream, like something that happened to other people. When I heard that I was going to be published, I was at Officeworks because I find buying stationery really therapeutic, and I put down my stationery and cried. The AWC's course has had a huge impact on my writing. It's changed my understanding of the thriller genre and my approach to writing it. Because of the clarity the course gave me, I feel far more confident doing it. I feel incredibly fortunate that my books have been published now. I love writing. It's energizing and meditative for me. I feel really committed to the stories I'm telling and I hope to keep doing it. Look, I would absolutely recommend the courses at the AWC um, to friends, aspiring authors, anyone. I would say do a course, do lots of courses and do them earlier rather than later on your writing path. It's worth it. To find out more, go to writerscentercomau slash crime. All right, shall we move on to our writer in residence this week? Let's do that, Valerie. After the strigil, I'm needing some <laughs> light relief. We had a great chat with Sarah Foster, who was a fantastic author of psychological suspense novels uh, based in Western Australia. She has written titles like Shallow Breath, Come Back to Me, all that is lost between us. She has lots of books and her latest is The Hush. 
So let's have a chat to Sarah about the hush and her writing process. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Valerie. Congratulations on your latest book, The Hush. Now, for those listeners who haven't got a copy yet, can you tell us what it's about? I sure can. So The Hush is set in the UK in the near future, so that's about five to ten years away, and it's at a time when there have been an increasing number of stillbirths happening across the country. In addition to this, pregnant teenage girls are also going missing. So in response to this, the government has decided to clamp down on people's personal freedoms, particularly women's, um, and also increase their powers of surveillance across the entire population. However, into this kind of wide political backgrounded story comes my very personal story of mother, daughter, Emma and Lainey. So Emma is a midwife at the local hospital and she is determined to help the women who really need her care. And Lainey is a student at the local high school and her friend Ellis is among the missing. So as the story progresses, Lainey and Emma begin to realise just how personally they are caught up into this wide-ranging situation. As this happens, um, they must turn to a formidable group of female friends around them to both kind of protect them and get them to safety and really race to uncover the truth of what is going on. Wow. Okay. And it, I have to say, it gets you in from the first page and it's such an intriguing premise. How in the world did this idea get into your brain? <laughs> yeah. So I really had the idea back in 2009 um, when I was kind of, it was a time when I just had my own daughter and I was feeding her and awake a lot of the night. And I was reading a lot of the contemporary dystopian fiction of the time, which was things like The Hunger Games and Divergent, and trying to figure out why they were so popular with adults and young adults alike and looking at some of the themes in those books. And I began to notice something really interesting in those books, which was that the mothers in the story were often absent in one way or another. So sometimes they were dead, sometimes they were missing, sometimes they were just mentally absent. But there were very little depictions of empowered mothers, present mothers, mothers working together with their daughters. And as I began to look more at that kind of genre of fiction, this only became more apparent until I decided I was actually going to apply and pursue a PhD on the topic and look at what the effect was not only on the reader, but on the female heroines in the story as well. Wow. And you you wanted to do an entire PhD on dystopian fiction? Well, on absent mothers in oh. dystopian fiction with young adult heroines. Very so specific. Kind of, yeah, it is very specific because the reason for that was because my theory and the things I go into into detail as I've done the research is that by constantly representing the older generations of women as missing, it's something that's become somewhat of a trope in this kind of fiction. And really what it means is that we are always seeing absence and that these young girls are always seeing this kind of spectral version of their older selves um and I'm fascinated by what that means in terms of female identity and just what happens if we reconnect those generations as well so Mm. I just really wanted to pursue um that line of inquiry and just draw out as many different threads as I could okay so the seed was planted back in 2009 when did you start a start writing this book in earnest Yeah, so I began writing this book really in 2015 because while I was Mm. doing this research, I still had to um, 
carry on with all my other contracted fiction as well. So mm. it was quite difficult to kind of find the time to really pursue it properly. And it's been a bit of a stop-start affair because um, also I've got my own children and so I've got quite a few different commitments. But yeah, 2015 was when I started it and it's been such a strange time to write it because really it's been over an era where there's been the rise mm. of Donald Trump, mm. the Me Too movement, um, all the climate change protests as well, which kind of figure in my book as well. And then finally, of course, we um, have got the pandemic of the last couple of years. So really, life events have overtaken the story quite a lot as I've been writing it as well. And um, yeah. yeah, it's been a very strange experience to sort of put things in the book that then have come to life or have kind of the real life has morphed in a way that I've had to then catch up to real life. And yeah, the whole thing has been quite surreal. So if you started writing it in 2015 and obviously had to juggle it around the other things that were going on in your life, pro- professionally and personally, did you write it in um, long chunks and then have long gaps or did you write chip away at it? Um, I did write it in a few long chunks essentially, I think. So more long chunks than just doing it on and on. Um, and then I would have gaps. And actually – Although that felt very frustrating at the time, I think that probably did the book a lot of good as well. It had a lot of time to rest. And I always love it when books get that chance to just rest for a while because sometimes when you're in the midst of them and you get lost, you can't see the wood for the trees. And then if you give it a period of time when you're working on something else, as soon as you come back to it, you go, I know exactly what is wrong or I know exactly what I need to do next with that. And it literally is just giving you, allowing yourself that headspace um, and letting the book kind of morph in its own time really but you of course have to have the luxury of time to be able to do that and for a working writer with contracts that's not always possible. Mm. So that's really beneficial to let it rest but of course the converse to that is as you say things then happen in real life and and you've had to then incorporate like a virus and incorporate (laughs) various things so was there a lot of rewriting? Well funnily enough no. Um, I think there was just it was more skewed towards climate change issues to begin with. So mm. I think it was just drawing back on that a little bit and then drawing forward on some of the other things that had come to light. But the female-centric story was very stable through the core of that. Mm. And I think the idea that um, you know people in power might be doing nefarious things and, and uh, there may be corruption going on behind the scenes in certain places is such a timeless situation um, that really it was more about tweaking than rewriting. Mm-hmm. So um, what was you, you've, you, why do you have an interest in this genre? Yeah, do you know what? I've always loved this genre of fiction. <laughs> I think I just, I mean, I read The Handmaid's Tale as a teenager. I was fascinated mm-hmm. by that. Same with 1984, Animal Farm, all those I would name as favorite novels of my teenage years um and to come back to it as an adult was really interesting and to look at how the genre had changed um and the different portrayals of the female characters over time as well I think I love the way that dystopian fiction holds up this mirror to society this often very uncomfortable um mirror that is full of questions that we don't get the chance to ask very often you know and it's sometimes to do with quite deep dark thoughts or situations that you know there's not the opportunity really to draw into light in everyday conversation 
to be able to create a world that has morphed or merged into some of those um, situations and taken on some of those darker identities and actually question what that means. I mean, in the hush, one of the interesting things um, was that really I didn't have to push too hard to get that real dystopian feel from things that are happening now. So, for example, the watches in the hush and you, the characters have to wear these watches all the time. It's mandated. Mm, yeah. um, it measures their heartbeat. It listens to their conversations. It knows where they are. Yeah. And um, really, you know, kind of we're not that far away from that. I think one of the few differences mm. of things that were definitely not um, prevalent in real life yet is that, you, you had to pay for stuff with your watch. But, you know, I'm paying for things more and more with my phone now. <laughs> so just so interesting to push it slightly further and then say, and what does this mean and what does this do? And I know I've mm. seen reader feedback as well that finding it very disconcerting because they're seeing it as a almost a depiction of reality, not that far away, and then looking at reality and going, oh, my God, is it really like this? And mm. what I wanted to do was be able to raise those questions, really, and go, what does it mean? And certainly, what does it mean for the female experience? Because interestingly, now, in some ways, we feel so empowered as women, and we certainly are in many ways that women weren't in previous generations. But there's also such a lot of still pressure on women, still very all sorts of small ways in which women are undermined or not given the same opportunities. And it's almost harder to name it now because mm. it's all below the surface. And so I really wanted to draw out some of these different themes and particularly around mothering and the idealization of mothering and what it means to present a different type of mother in a fiction book and say, yeah, what do you think of this? Mm. It is, um, it's very thought for a thought provoking and very disconcerting because I do pay with everything with my watch and even my COVID vaccination status is on my watch. And look, oh my God, even if I, as I'm speaking to you now, my watch has come alive and, it's, <laughs> and, and just said to me, got it. She's <laughs> probably saying, hang up on Sarah Foster. <laughs> <laughs> She's actually said to me, got it. All right. So now you have a background in the publishing industry because you have previously worked as a book editor at HarperCollins um, and then uh, you went on to decide oh, you want to write your own novels. So tell us how you got into book editing in the first place and at what point did you decide, I actually want to write the books, not edit them? Yes, well, so my very first job after university and then I took a short break for a gap year um, was to work in the stock control department of HarperCollins Fiction Department in the UK. Sorry, not even the fiction department, just across the HarperCollins um, company in the UK. And so my first job was basically to look at numbers on a screen mm -hmm. and see if these books had sold enough to have a reprint, whether mm -hmm. they needed to be referred to my supervisor because it was murky or whether they weren't selling anymore and to put them out of print. And I've been saying recently, it's only now that I realised that actually I was kind of my first job was ending books lives in a way like, oh my god awful. <laughs> you know because I, I was so fresh and new I had no idea of the import of what I was doing you know to mm. people I'd just been given a load of parameters and told um yeah how to do this so mm. um that was my very first job for a few months and as I was about to leave the company I noticed that there was an advert for the assistant to the fiction publishing director and I went upstairs and had an interview and got that job and suddenly found myself immersed in this amazing world where 
people like Tony Parsons, Faye Weldon, Barbara Taylor Bradford, Jeffrey mm. Archer were, you know, coming in and out. And um, <laughs> yeah, it was just incredible. And I would watch them all go by and into the offices and I would see how the contracts were made and how things were talked about. And just really, I was an observer in that fantastic world for quite a long time as I did my secretarial job. And I was very lucky that people gave me opportunities to begin to work on the books themselves and proofread and then do a little bit more editing. Um, but it became quite clear to me quite quickly that I was very jealous of those people coming in and out. And I really actually wanted to be on the other side of the desk. I didn't have the same ambitions to work up the publishing ladder as I did to actually write the stories. So that was quite confronting for me because I didn't have much confidence back then either in I'd written a lot, but I was quite shy about sharing it and, you know, hadn't pushed on with that very much. So it took me a while. And then I left that job and went freelance because the commute to that job ended up being horrific. Um, it was four hours a day to get oh to my and from God. I know. Yeah, it was awful because um, mm -hmm. the train system collapsed during the time I was working there. Um, and so, yeah, I freelanced, edited and picked up my career in that way for a while and did lots of reports on books for people and kind of just felt my way around the world, I guess, while I was getting my confidence to try and do something for myself. Mm. Um, it was probably a fantastic thing to do, really, because it gave me such insight in how books are put together that I don't think I would be anywhere near as far along as I am without having done that first and with just having tried to forge a writing career. But it wasn't until I actually got to Australia and I'd been doing the book editing here for a few years and um, made some contacts with Australian publishers that I began to think, look, if you're going to try this, you've got these half-finished novels, you need to push on and actually have a go at getting them done and put yourself out there and see what happens. And so, yeah, I was around 30 when I started doing that. Mm. So when you are in the depths of your writing, when you're in the middle of a manuscript, can you describe to us your typical day and if you have any kind of routines or rituals that you do to get into the zone and so on? Yeah, well, my days are quite unusual because I have a very busy home life. I'm um, homeschooling two girls at home. So I have I get up really early and I go for a walk and I think things through while I'm on my walk. And then I try and do about an hour and a half of writing before they get up. Mm -hmm. um, so that by the time they get up, I feel like I've made a good start. And then the day will be devoted to them until early afternoon when we've finished all the things we need to do. And then I get on with the writing or other aspects of the publishing business. Mm -hmm. And my husband then takes over and does the things that the girls need to get to in the afternoon. So I supplement that by going to hotels basically or I was doing mm. I haven't done it as much lately but every now and again to do a big push I'll go away for a few days and I'll just immerse myself in that book and I won't talk to anyone I don't want to talk to anyone I'm happy just writing 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 going for walks and I fall asleep with the laptop on my bed I wake mm. up and I start writing again and I just allow mm. myself to live in the story um, and that's probably a good combination because I think if you don't live in this if, certainly for me if I don't live in the story at some points it doesn't feel like it's coming alive as much as I want it to um, mm. and it's very hard to do that when you've got a family and and situations going on at home so I think the combination of those two things is what works for me. So your family obviously used 
to the fact that you go off every so often for these few days to immerse yourself in the story. How frequently does this happen and how many days at a time do you go and do you have a goal? Like by the end of this hotel stay, I'm going to have written X number of words. Well, on a standard day at home, I can probably put on about 800 to 1,000 words a day Mm. Uh, if I'm writing. uh, It gets murkier as you go along because I edit as I write, so that becomes harder as I go along, but that's my main goal. If I go away, I'm looking to put about two and a half, three thousand 3,000 words on a day, so that's a much bigger goal. Um, And I normally go, it really depends on the situation, so if I've got a deadline coming up and I'm worried about that, I will go more frequently. There have been points where I've gone every Friday, Saturday. That's not ideal for me. That's not really what I want to be doing. But to get through that situation, that's what we did. You Normally mean every I, Friday and Saturday each week you went to a hotel? I did for a while. Wow. Yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, just to make it work um, yeah. because there was no other way. Like it was all very intense for a while. Um, but normally I would like to do it every month and I would maybe go away for a little bit longer and go three days, maybe in four days, depending on what we can push because we're juggling life the whole time as well um, and finances, obviously. Um, so, yeah, depending on what I can achieve, I'll, I think a month is a good time because Ooh. that allows you to kind of work on the script loosely for a while and then you know at the end of the month you've maybe got that push coming and that helps you not get too worried about where you're at with it. And, yeah, I, I think a month is good. Wow. Do you have a go-to hotel or do you like trying different ones? No, I do have a go-to a hotel. I ended up going to one called um, Sage in, in the city of Perth for quite a while, um, but now I've switched it around. I'm kind of going a bit further afield down to Mandarin stuff every now and again, so that's been quite nice. But, yeah, there's a few. Definitely if I find a good one, I'd like to go back there. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. So um, when you're thinking of this, so let's take this book, let's take The Hush. Did you know how the story was going to play out or did you did you just see what unfolded as you were writing it um yes and no so I knew roughly where I wanted to be at the end and where the I wanted the characters to be um but some of the detail around that did change as I went along so I think it did morph quite a bit and mm. that's not necessarily very usual. Often I do have a more fixed idea of where I'd like it to be. Um, and it usually stays there. And it's the big, messy middle that I have to deal with rather than the end. But in this one, there were so many changing circumstances and um, developments of things that happened that, yeah, it did morph a little bit. But there's still an essence there of what I wanted it to be at the end. So you have a, quite a number of interesting and different um, main characters, you know, the main characters in the book. Um, you've mentioned Lainey and Emma. There's also um, other characters like Serena and so on. How did you um, decide, how did you develop them? Did you think of them first and create, you know, a, a backstory and and details about them? Or, again, did you discover them as they unfolded? Um. To an extent, I discovered them as they unfolded. I do do certain things at at different times in the book. I do different things. So I do sometimes do a little Excel chart where I start filling in what they look like and, you know, all the different mannerisms and things like that. And 
I did do that to a degree. Often what I find is when I get too plotty like that or too analytical, I start to get bored. And so I rarely finish those kind of things because I think the way I feel most comfortable with it is when the characters are just talking to me all the time. So often when I write a book, I don't write anything down until the character has been talking to me for at least a couple of years. Um, And so I have one now that I haven't started writing where the character has been talking to me for a good year and a half. Um, And I just like to, when I think of that character, I just kind of listen and tune in and think about the wider world and how they react to things. And, um, and they just start developing themselves like that. So by the time I actually put anything down on paper, I normally have a fairly good sense of who they are, but because it's so internal, often I neglect some of those more external details, like what they look Mm. like and things like that. So I think it's a good process to have a go at that consciously. Um, but often I find they stop talking to me when I do that. So, you know, it's like <laughs> Do, I'm out the app. <laughs> can you define what you mean by the characters have been talking to me? I know. Are you going to get me a <laughs> call from the madhouse? <laughs> um, they, just, they just live in my head and I just, I kind of, I think I feel so connected to, I don't know what it is about them. There's something in my subconscious that obviously picks up on these different elements of identity. Mm. And I'm just, you know, like it's probably one of the last things I think about when I go to bed. I always think about my characters when I'm going to sleep and I just constantly wondering what this person would do in that situation or what would happen there and one thing or another until I feel like I can hear them and so there's one character in particular, Geraldine in The Hush, and mm. she's a strident feminist figure, um, second wave feminism. Um, she was a big part of that. And um, she had a lot to say, both in the book and things that didn't get in the book. And I held her back for quite a long time, even though I could hear her and I could hear the kind of things that she would say. And I think probably it's a m- big old mesh of my subconscious and the things I'm reading and things that are going on in the outside world. And I read a lot of news and one thing or another. And so I could kind of hear the way she was talking about things. And when I finally got to write her, she just gave me pages after pa- you know, pages of things that she wanted to say. And I was thinking, well, this is great. I'll just write it all down, but probably not much of it is going to actually make the book and not much of it did. But even now, if I think of her very quickly, I will start hearing like her voice, you know, like Mm. I've got a distinct voice in mind and I'll start hearing her contributing bits of kind of commentary (laughs) on whatever I'm looking at or, yeah, it's weird. But um, I guess it's just the way I connect with the characters and deeper than that, I suppose, just bits of identity that I'm interested in. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so this question now draws on not only your experience as an author of multiple books, but definitely of your experience as a book editor, because I read so many unpublished manuscripts where the characters are great, the dialogue's great, some of the scenes are really compelling, the premise is fantastic, and where it falls down is the structure. What do you think, in terms of your advice to people who structurally they know something's not quite right, this is particularly from your experience as a book editor, what do they need to do to work out where it's wrong and what needs to be fixed? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think you there's quite a few questions you can ask around that. So Two of the big questions for me are what is in there that doesn't need to be in there and what's not in there that does need to be in there. And always in that context, I'm looking at essentially how 
simply and effectively I can say something. So whatever I've said, if I've said it in a hundred words, can I say it in 20, you know, and, and that's daunting when you're trying to build up a word count. But if you're trying to get pace in your book and my books are pacey, I mean, if you're trying to write a more literary reflection, um, you might want to dwell on things for longer and you, and those words might be really important to you and you might have a different answer to this. But certainly in my experience, getting the pace in means paring it back quite a lot of the time and cutting and cutting. And so I would say originally write for, write the scene, you know, and don't worry too much about that because I do think that can be done in editing, but it's that sharpening that is really going to make those scenes stand out. And yeah, it's getting ever harder to um, come up with original ideas and feel like, you know, we've got such a wealth of fiction nowadays. And mm. um, so to make your fiction stand out, I think that, the craft is becoming ever more important and really how you do refine those scenes. And the word choices are so, you know, that you can analyse word choices. You should be analysing everything from the top down. Um, certainly, uh, even on a chapter level, look at where the chapters need to be there or whether they can go. Sometimes mm-hmm. people start the story before the story needs to start, you know, is the bits at the beginning you can cut. And, um, yeah, so I would say... I start with very much the structure that the publishers follow. I start by this macro look at the whole thing, mm. um, you know, whether there's characters that shouldn't be in there anymore and see what I can cut out that way. Um, then I, once I've done that, I see if there's anything else that I need to put in that I haven't built up that should be there. And then I go right through working down until I'm looking at my word choices and everything in very fine detail. So, yeah, I guess sometimes I think the things that are there that should be missing that shouldn't be there and the things that aren't that should be are those good questions to start that whole process great so what's next for you what are you working on now well um (laughs) I (laughs) I am finishing my theory for my PhD um and I'm also finishing um an audible original and then next year I will be working on another kind of psychological thriller story for HarperCollins and for Blackstone in the US. So I've got plenty to keep me busy. (laughs) So the the one, the Audible original that you're writing, presumably it's a novel. Um, It's it's fictional. Um, Are you also? Is the plan also to then turn it into a printed book? Yeah, well, it's a novella, um, so it's 50,000 words. Um, but, yeah, it will be. I'm not sure which territories yet, but I know there are territories that are going to take it as a printed book mm-hmm. um, and we're still waiting to see what happens with it. But that's another psychological suspense as well. So yes. that's at editing stage. So it's written. Um, yeah, just we're just editing it. Knowing that it is going to Audible first, did you write it in a different way um, than you would have written you know your your regular novels I think the only thing that I did differently was to really really think about pace the whole time because Mm. I find and that's probably personal choice but I find that in the audible stuff that I listen to or the audio stuff in general um I can only listen to pacey crime or non-fiction. Mm. I find it really mm. hard to – I'd much rather read the more literary fiction or even general fiction, um, and I didn't want people to give up on it, you know, so I thought this has got to be a pacey story and it's mm. got to – yeah, so I looked at pace and I looked at keeping everything tight with just that extra awareness of where it was going. 
Mm, wonderful. Okay. Um, and, of course, we must uh, finish on the important question, what's your advice for aspiring writers who hope to be in a position like you are one day? Your top, <laughs> your top three tips. Top three tips. Um, yeah. I would say the first and most important tip I have got is to learn everything you can about the industry because publishing is very different beast to writing and often I think people are quite surprised when they've written a book and and they think the publishing process is simple and straightforward Um, and that probably comes in two parts as well even the publishing process and the editing process and the more you can be on board with those things at the start the less like you are you are to be in for a shock further down the road Um, because it's very it's such a strange career in a way because the one hand you're shut away and you're doing a lot of work on your own and and then you suddenly come out and it's very public and you're talking to people all the time and um, it's good to get as much experience you can in both sides of things and you can of course do that by um, going to author talks and just watching what's happening online and signing up for podcasts like yours and um, all these different things that you can do to get an insight into the two sides of that industry. Mm. Um, In terms of writing itself I would say one of the things I've said to people recently is instead of most people say read as advice and that's such a wide ranging piece of advice that I've realized as I've gone on that it can overwhelm people so Mm. I would say refine that to analyzing a book that you absolutely love and that you want Mm. to emulate or um, that seems similar somehow in the things that you want to achieve creatively and just go, you don't need to read every book. You, uh, you just need to go to a few that you admire and that touched mm. your heart and to look at them and find out what it was. Look at the language, look at the style, look at the pacing, look at the chapter length, you know, look at, yeah, the way they named their characters even, you know, all the different details they brought in their characters. And, um, yeah, if you can break those down, I still now go back to those books when I'm struggling. And if there's a book that I thought, oh, that was brilliant for atmosphere, um, Mm. I'll have another look at it and look at that scene and think, how did they do that? And I'll really work at breaking that down so that it helps me then craft my own scene. I think that can really help as well when you feel a bit stuck and you think you might be slipping towards the writer's block thing. I think you just need a practical tool and that can be really useful. Mm. Brilliant. Have I brilliant. Given two? I think, I think <laughs> yes. Learn about the industry. Uh, you know what? I think the third one, the third one would just be discipline. Do it mm. every day, even if it's only fifty words one day. You know, it might, and just do what you can every day, and just don't stop because that's what will get you to the finished page the the end yeah brilliant brilliant all right so the hush uh the suspense and pacing starts from the very first page everyone get a copy thank you so much for your time today sarah thanks very much valerie it's been a pleasure there we go sarah foster psychological suspense it's always something that um oh i love reading because i love that um i love the page turning effect that it has on me however I hate reading them when I am really really busy because I can't put it down and I need to get yeah, my other stuff done I know. and you need to get on with mm. the other stuff that um latest one of hers is getting a lot of um there's a lot of online chatter about it as well so I think it's oh, going yeah. really well for her which is great very compelling all right fantastic so what are you doing in the coming week Al are you going to kick up to yet another higher gear 
well, I'm going to buy a ham, so there'll be oh, that. Yeah. And you know what? I because we're we're going away not long after Christmas, and I had said maybe we just you know get a small ham, and we don't really. It's only it's like the 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 main main part of the family is not coming this right. year. That's an away Christmas, and so there's only sort of us and my parents. And I thought, gosh, do we need a five kilo ham and a whatever you know whatever all of that? Right. And I said I I put out to the masses that you mm. know possibly we didn't need a glazed ham this year, and the boys both just were like. No, no, we got to have the ham. No, no, oh, really? no, it's got to be glazed. No, we need the glazed ham, Mum. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, we need the ham. We're getting the ham. We're going to be eating ham for days and then we're going away. But all right, let's get the ham. Do you get so the we'll ham from the, ham. the butcher or the supermarket? Well, it depends on what I'm doing with it. Like if I was just going to serve the ham as just right. an additional thing to a larger buffet range, I would <laughs> probably get it from there's a butcher down here that does an amazing ham. I would right. probably do that. Um, mm. But given that I will be, you know, like slapping, I don't exactly know what on it yet, marmalade and cognac and God knows what mm. else, like glazing it and baking it for an hour, um, I probably will just go with the Aldi ham, I think. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I think so. So I don't know, like the ham thing is a big discussion that needs to be had in most. I mean, I, I, I went to the local markets on the weekend and they were have, they had a, the Rotary Club. Well, I do love a good Rotary Club. The Rotary mm. Club had a chocolate wheel. Remember the chocolate wheel? Oh, you buy the wow. chicken around. They had a chocolate wheel and they had 50 hams that they were raffling off for the chocolate wheel over the day. So we bought a couple of tickets and waited for a spin of the wheel, but we were not lucky. And uh, my my father usually goes to the, it's it's his job every year to attend the local bowling club ham raffle uh, oh, okay. in, a, in an attempt to win a ham. And he has been successful over many years. So there's a potential that, it, but, you know, as I said to him, it's, it's a, you know, weigh it up because at the end of the day, it's, it's usually quite late. And like, how long do you wait for your ham in case you don't get a ham? Like, oh, like, yeah. Ham politics, I'm telling yeah. you. It's intense. Maybe I should see whether I can win a ham. Well, you yes. Attend yes. your local bowling club when they have their yes. ham raffle. And well, you. I just joined my local golf club. Oh, there so you go. There'll they, be a ham raffle. Ham Keep an eye yes. out. Keep an eye All on right. the ham raffle. I don't play golf, but, you know. Um, Not yet. At least I could win a ham. <laughs> All right, fantastic. So where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Valerie, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.